Well, I do invite you this morning to join with me again in 1 Samuel. And uh, as I tried to figure out where, where we would begin this year, it kept coming back to this story and, um, that we'll be dealing with from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And it was one we slightly touched on last week, um, I will admit, but, but it's one that nonetheless, uh, no matter how often we hear it, there's something more that we can get from it. And so uh, one of the interesting things is in 1980, um, Al Michaels cried into, made, made this exclamation into uh, the microphone and as TV people watched in, from the TV this amazing thing where he declared, do you believe in miracles? And it was the Olympics and the U.S. hockey team had beaten, unbelievably, Russia, the dominant world leader in hockey. It was one of the greatest sporting upsets of all times and still referred to often. And similarly, you can always seem to find um, stories in the headlines that tell of the little-known challenger beating the champion or the victor or the, the expected one to win of that game, whether, whatever it is. It, and, and almost all of them refer at one point or another when, when talking about this David versus Goliath thing. And it, it's become just part of our, our culture just to refer to it as the David versus Goliath. Without really... Most people fully understanding the context and the understanding of what that really means. The, this reference of against, the, against all odds kind of scenario, David and Goliath. It's a story we tell and we share with kids from a very early age. And whether it's in politics, business, sports, someone always seems to mention the sling-wielding little boy beating the well-armed warrior. It's the prototype for upsets. And in 1 Samuel 17, we, as we begin that, and we, I mean, it starts right in. It's, uh, the Israelites are on one side of a huge valley about 15 miles from Jerusalem. The Philistines are on the other side of this huge valley, both sitting on top of the, the precipice of, of those, that valley. And it seems like no, no one really wants to begin the battle, so they just day after day after day, at this point, over 40 days, they've gotten up, they've gotten ready, they've dressed for battle, and they run up to the edge of the, the cliff and say, Woohoo! Let's do this! And they stand there, and no one moves. What's for lunch? 
I don't know what their, their next conversation, but they're standing there, and it's in the midst of that kind of moment that this spunky teenage boy, the one that nobody even thought to call earlier in the discussion with Samuel, this little shepherd boy, we know he's not even of, of fighting age because at 20 he would have been required to have already been there as part of the army. So, so he's probably even among, as you look at the conversation, quite a bit younger. This small shepherd boy walks up and he, he puts his stuff that he's brought, the meals and things for his brothers aside with, with the people that are taking care of that, walks up and just starts listening. And he hears Goliath, who at some point, instead of just the, the stand up and look, look tough kind of thing, has now come down into the valley and he's shouting up at the Israelites, insult after insult, as he proposes to them that you send your champion against me and we'll settle this. You send your champion, and whoever wins, the other, the other side's defeated and becomes the slave. So basically, you send them against me, I'll take care of you, and you guys, we'll just end this, and you'll be our slaves. We win. And David shows up, and he decides to get involved. And while these daily insults happen and while the national sovereignty is at stake in the midst of that it is David's firm belief that this isn't just a national issue that instead it's more about God's sovereignty that moves him to act and so if you really think about it the interesting thing is, in the midst of this story that nobody really wants to talk about, is, is Goliath, this nine foot something, most say about nine foot nine giant of a man, as he shows up and he challenges anybody to come and take him on, champion versus champion, nobody wants to talk about the reality that it's likely that King Saul was the man to take him on. Physically, Saul, it says, when, when he was being uh, voted in, that he was a head taller than the average Israelite, than all other Israelites, it says. That he was the biggest and the toughest looking dude they had, and he was the king. But like those around him, it seems that he is very much still at awestruck at the size of Goliath. And he refuses to fight. So instead, he tries to coax somebody else to do it. He says, well, I can provide all these rewards. And, and, and so whoever takes him on and defeats him gets this, the great wealth, this, I, I won't tax your family for life. Um, you know, you can marry one of my daughters and on top of that, man, the fame will be outstanding. They will talk about you for ages. And yet, 
even though the reward was massive. No one seems to want to compete against Goliath because if you lose, it doesn't mean shame, it means death. There's, there's no uncertainty in that. But as we look at the various components of this story, it, it, I don't want it to be lost on us that there's something that we can take away from these stories, this story about the giants that we take on in life. And so as we look at this story this morning, the one that we often tell our little kids, the ones referenced from, in a cultural context of the, of the little guy versus the giant, we need to understand that we need a different perspective. You see, from a human perspective, Goliath is unstoppable. At, at over nine feet tall, he, he, he was everything that you really think about that Joshua and the spies saw and feared when they looked into the promised land. These giants of men. His armor alone weighed over 125 pounds. Even the tip of his spear was 15 pounds. And here he stands challenging Israel to this representative battle. The loser becomes the slave of the winner. And while Goliath was the single problem in reality, he is threatening to undo the entire nation of Israel. I mean, I understand it. He's a formidable foe. I stand up against Zach here and, and Ty, and I feel about yay tall. I can only imagine David, who's likely about four foot five, standing up against a nine foot nine behemoth. But the problem is, most were looking at him through human eyes. Goliath, sure, it, it was a thing. And Saul and his soldiers are, are viewing the situation from this human perspective. I mean, it says in, in verse 25, have you seen this guy? That's my paraphrase. And they're looking at Goliath from this viewpoint that will go unchallenged. And and. Goliath's viewpoint is this. Am I not just a Philistine? And you're just the servants of Saul? But yet, that is a correct statement from a human perspective. David's perspective was different. David saw it from God's perspective, and he, he challenges Goliath from the very beginning even before he approaches Goliath, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of God? Different perspective. For David, Goliath isn't just the Philistine. He is the uncircumcised Philistine. And the Israelites are not just the servants of Saul. The Israelites are the armies of the living God. 
And David has this different perspective that changes everything in how he approaches things. Uh, you know, Saul and the armies, they're afraid because they saw as a conflict of size against Goliath's size. Their weapons against Goliath's weapons. Their level of experience in warfare. And they have faced and defeated war, you know, whole armies. But versus Goliath, it just doesn't seem possible. And David sees it as this conflict of God against the forces of evil. And Saul and his men, they, they see Goliath and think, he's so big, we can't take him on. And David sees him and says, he's so big, I can't miss. It's a significant indicator of how David views things when, when he calls Goliath an uncircumcised Philistine. It's something we say, oh, okay, whatever. We don't really think about it. But as an Israelite, specifically a young man who has already been anointed the new king, we often tend to forget that, but he's already been anointed the new king. And here David is from the tribe of Judah. The one that's been proclaimed will be forever the king and and here he is and he he sees this as well he's uncircumcised and we think uh but for for that it's it's to be uncircumcised is to be outside of the abrahamic covenant and the promised blessings of god and when god instituted this sign of circumcision with abraham he was living in the midst of canaan he was in the midst of a people that were morally corrupt. Sodom and Gomorrah are at the height of their immoral ways. And every variety of sexual sin is, is going on. And, and God wants at this point, when he's making this covenant, when he makes that sign in this agreement with Abraham, he says, I want you to be morally pure. I want you to be holy set apart. There's got to be something distinctive about your life. And so he, he directs Abraham to circumcise every male as a sign of his covenant. They can't go and participate in all the things that this world is corrupting in sexually without showing who they really are. And so they have this unmistakable sign of allegiance to God. So when David says this, he's showing us an example that we need to understand that if you want to defeat a Goliath in your life, you have to begin by calling it by what it is, by what God calls it. You're not going to conquer it if you don't see it from God's perspective. As we deal with things in our life, we need to call it for what it is. If it's sin you're facing, acknowledge it. Even while knowing that the world's probably got another name for it, that they try to lessen the blow of what it is. If you're dealing with addiction, call it for what it is. It's not just an issue, it's an addiction. If it's sin, call it for what it is, sin. Stop labeling it other things. God knows what it is. 
And God hates sin, and he hates all the things that take our focus off of who he is and his reliability and faithfulness in our life. And he understands that these sins in our lives will destroy us. And so we need to start calling it for what it is. But secondly, when, when taking on giants in our life, we, we don't need just a proper perspective, but we need a, a personal and practical faith in God. David didn't have just a generic faith. He, he didn't have a faith in faith itself. He, 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 he didn't buy into this common notion that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. David believed in the living God who was in a covenant relationship with his people. The same God that sent people in his, his people into the promised land saying, Not, don't worry about all the different things that everybody else is freaking out about. I will provide. David believed in that kind of a living God. In a relationship, he not only had faith in God, he applied that faith in, to God in difficult and challenging situations. He didn't just come up with a saying and say, well, trust the Lord, Saul. Saw my brothers, they've got their meals. Deal, go on. Good luck. Instead, it says that, he said, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. This kind of faith is always active, it's engaging, it's aggressive. It goes out and takes on the problem face, face on. And this practical faith is, is rooted in personal experience. This wasn't David's first outing. Even though he was just a teenager, and he's just a shepherd. God had proved faithful in, in, in training David. When the lion and the bear had taken one of the sheep, David just doesn't look and say, oops, didn't see that one coming. My bad. My mistake. We'll get it next time. No, he goes after them. And he defeats them. And after that, he, he doesn't go around boasting of it. Yes. You know, have you seen the one I nailed over there? Yeah. No, he, 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 he goes in and he uses those incidents to convince Saul that he can do it because God is on his side. God was in charge. He's, he's relying on that. He's constantly trusting. And, and what we always seem to forget is that Saul should have been the leading one in this kind of understanding. That's the kind of faith Saul should have had. He had provided, God had provided him with victories already in the past. But what we find in, in it often was that Saul was a master and had a track record at partial obedience. And the reality is, is that partial obedience, let's call it for what it is, it's just disobedience. In fact, we, we see, we could call Saul a cultural believer. You believe in God, they know all the things to say, they outwardly seem to have it all together, but their faith is not really there. It's not personal, it's not practical. They don't want to confront and deal with the sin in their life. So they 
when they face the giant, they may mouth all the right things. They may say all the religious cliches, but it's not really in them. It's not personal. If Saul had known really the, the presence and the reality of the Lord's presence, then he wouldn't have hesitated to go out against Goliath. As it was, he had a form of religion, but he didn't know the power of a relationship with the living God. And so David's experience has expressed itself in this personal and practical faith in God. And what that means for us is that when the lion, the bear, or the giant come against us, instead of tolerating it, you recognize it for what it is. You recognize that you cannot allow it to have its way in your life. You can't coexist with it. You can't just kind of skirt the issue Instead, you have to confront it and cut it off from your life because either you destroy sin in your life or sin will destroy you. And as you lean in and you learn to confront these little sins and different things, the the lions and the bears that, that exist in your life, you gain this experience and this practical and personal faith that the next one's a little bit more and a little bit more until you are taking on and conquering the giants because of not because of what you do, but because you believe and trust in the Lord God. And the key for all of this is that it's based on the living God himself, not just in human methods. David's faith was first and foremost in the living God, not in, in the human things that he'd done in the past, after Saul says, well, may the Lord be with you, we see where Saul's real reality lied. And, and that he tries to outfit David in his own armor. Remember, Saul is a head foot taller than all the Israelite men. So he's somewhere six to six five, somewhere in there. The average man was five foot five, five to five foot five. David's not even full size. So he's probably four foot five. I mean, this is a humorous picture. Think little kid trying to wear dad's work clothes. I can't see. The armor doesn't fit. I can't move. It's too heavy. And so, that's the way of the cultural believer. They want and they think, you know, you fight the enemy with all the latest worldly ways, the techniques, the methods, and well, just to make it feel good, sound spiritual, we'll throw in some lofty words. And many Christians try to face giants in their life, but instead of turning to Scripture first and understanding who God is, in, in His reality and faith, faithfulness, we turn to the wisdom of the world and we try to throw in some Bible verses to make it sound spiritual. But David, and again, don't miss the picture. David gets all this armor on. He can't move. And so he takes it off and then he, he does use a method 
that he's found faithful with God, that he's been trained in. He, he grabs a stick, five smooth stones, and his shepherd's sling. And the difference is that the method that David used was consistent with the faith in the living God from the past. He, he understood that God's glory and power was in this moment. And he didn't magnify his sling or his own expert, expertise, but rather he magnified God in the midst of all of this. So as he walks toward Goliath, You see in verse 47, he says that this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear. There's nothing wrong with the methods that we use, but we have to start with trust that is found in the living God, not in the method. And our proper perspective of faith always honors God first, not the methods so, so thus to fell, fell the giants in our life, we have to have that practical perspective, that proper perspective, that practical faith, but we have to keep a deliberate focus on God's glory, not our own. When David hears the taunting of Goliath, he doesn't think to himself, well, here's my chance. Here's the opportunity. I can get everything. I can get all this stuff. I'll become a national hero. Instead, he's concerned about God's glory. That God's name is bound up in his people. And as long as Goliath is, is insulting daily in, in his, God's people, God himself is really being taunted. So David is moved with this righteous indignation because God's honor is being dragged through the mud. And, and Saul seems to be more concerned with his own glory than God's glory. He wants a good appearance. He practices, so he practices religion, but the real motive is his own honor, not the honor of God. And so when David later defeats Goliath, and he becomes very popular, and the saying, Saul starts hearing the saying going around, well, Saul kills thousands, but David, he kills tens of thousands. Saul doesn't like that. Saul should have rejoiced in David's victory because it was a victory for Israel. God had been, had been vindicated and God's people had been de delivered, but instead he sulks and he tries to bring David down because he was motivated by his own self. So that brings us to an important question as we kind of wrap things up this morning. As you face the giants in your life, why do you want to fell them in your life? Why do you want to take them down? I mean, we identify them, but what is it that's motivating you to, to face them? David publicly states he wants to defeat Goliath first so that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He wanted unbelievers and all people to see that God is real and He is mighty to save those who trust in Him. So David wants all the professing believers, all the, 
to, to understand who, who haven't been truly trusting God. And he says this by saying, this assembly, all these people that are up on the hill watching, you're just standing there. You're not doing anything. So that this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, the, the latest methods, but rather that the battle is the Lord's. We should want all people to see how God helped us conquer the overwhelming problems that we face in life. And we do that by trusting in Him so that maybe they would put their trust in Him. We should want others who are locked into this human perspective and struggling and can't get out of the, against the sins in their life and the addictions and the issues and they're, they're using all the, the words of, of the world and they're using all this and that trying to, and they always find frustration to understand that we put God first. And as they watch, we don't say we've got it perfect, that we've defeated everything, but when we face things with God, things come out differently than when we don't. God will work on the behalf of those who trust Him and seek His glory, not our own. So then we declare with David, and I love this psalm. And it says in verse six, tw- uh, Psalm 20, verses 6 through 7, now, that I, now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He answers Him from His holy heaven with the saving power of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our life must reflect that reality. As we face the giants, as we face the armies of the forces of evil, whatever that means in your life, whose trust are you putting it in? Are you putting it in the Lord's or are you putting it in your own? As you face the things in your life, are you calling for what they are? Not just bad habits. Are you calling it for the sin that it might be or that it is? Are you putting your faith in God? Or are you putting your faith in yourself? New Year's, we, we tend to put in all the new things that we want to accomplish, that we want to correct in our life. So we come up with resolutions that usually last maybe, well, when we set them. Are we attacking on these things on the Lord's behalf? Or are we just doing it to say that we said we did it. If we truly live into the hope and the faith that we know we serve the living God, it changes everything. Heavenly Father, as we face the giants, as we face the things that often seem insurmountable, Maybe it's other people. Maybe it's 
sin that, that we've become a part of in our life. Help us to recognize it for what it is. To not to, to sugarcoat it, but to understand that, God, we have strayed from You. That we are called to something different. That we are called to understand and adhere to, to Your calling to be holy for You, the Lord God, are holy. That it's not just words on a page, but it is a calling for each and every one of us. As we face the sin in our life, help us to bring it to You. To use the resources of Your people that comes in a relationship with You. To seek forgiveness. To confess it for what it is. And to receive it with thankfulness. But as a result, that we would live differently each and every day. That You would receive the glory for the freedom that you have given to each and every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Go. Live for the Lord today. You're dismissed.